Uh, quick warning, I'm about to say the most stupidly obvious thing you've ever heard a pastor say, but the New Testament is a pretty fantastic book. I, I, it's pretty great. You, you agree with me on that, right? That the New Testament's pretty good. I think it's pretty good. When you think of the Gospels or Acts or various letters written by guys like Paul or Peter or, or James or John, the people who wrote those letters and those books didn't know that they were writing the Bible when they were writing it. They weren't like, okay, I'm going to write the Bible today. Here's some Bible for you. They were just writing letters and they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they didn't know at the time that it was the Bible. Um, the people who chose the books that would be canonized as in the Bibles, the books that would make up the Bible, they were inspired as well. The people who translated from the original Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, there's inspiration there too. Um, of course, we all know that the greatest inspiration is found among those who preach and teach the words of the New Testament to small rural congregations in, in Clyde. Um, not that I'm bragging or anything, but... Uh, I am the chief inspiration officer. It's a title I've held for some time. Uh, I didn't get the shirt made just for this, by the way. I, I've had it for a while. It's buttoned up again. <laughs> but in all that inspiration, I, I think there's something miraculous about us having the books of the New Testament. Can you, I, I was thinking specifically of Acts because, of course, I have been for the last two years. But can you imagine the New Testament without Acts? Now that we've studied it more in depth, I can't imagine the New Testament without Acts. There would be a gaping hole in our faith history if we didn't know what the apostles did following the ascent of Jesus to heaven. Uh, Luke answers a lot of important questions. How did the Holy Spirit show up? How did the gospel end up among the Gentiles? How did the early church behave? What did their customs and practices look like? And this guy, Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, how did he become a follower of Jesus? Um, if we didn't have Acts, this, this, Paul would be this mystery figure. Thankfully, we do have Acts. Acts examines all of these questions and many more. And the value of that, that theology-based history, the, the value of that can't be measured. It's, it's, it's priceless. It's, it's a priceless living artifact, in fact. And, and we're fortunate for God's grace in gifting us that document, as well as the rest of the New Testament. It, it's an act of grace. I don't know if we see it like that. We, we, we feel like we're entitled to the Bible. But that's an act of grace that he gave that to us. And so the New Testament, it's pretty great, pretty important, right? We can all agree on that? Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> I would hope so. Because what I'm about to say next might be a little controversial if taken the wrong way. See, I think the New Testament is great, but it's missing some things. It's missing some things. It's it's sufficient for all of our spiritual needs. Don't get, get us wrong. Anything we need in, in knowing Jesus and being saved is found in the New Testament. So that's not what I mean. Don't get me wrong. It's a feast of truth. It's just that sometimes after feasting on roast beef with, with scalloped potatoes and buttery carrots and, and, and apple crisp with, with, with whipped cream on top for dessert, after that great feast, sometimes you want a hot, hot cup of tea to follow. And I just think that sometimes the Bible forgot about the hot cup of tea. For instance, we just finished up the Advent season. The gospel, well, two of the gospels offer a really in-depth narrative of the arrival of Jesus, of, of Emmanuel. We know all the little details, how Joseph and Mary found out, how they responded, who was there to witness Jesus' birth, what, what the place of birth was like and, and where it was. We know all these details and many more. We, 
We know a lot about the birth of Jesus. We know quite a bit about actually the first 10 months from, from Jesus' conception to his circumcision. We, we've got that part of his early history down pat. But then for the next 30 years, nothing. There's one story of Jesus when he's 12 giving his parents a heart attack because they thought they misplaced the Messiah. But that's, there's 30 lost years of Jesus. And I want to know more about those lost years. I want to know what Jesus was like as a baby. Don't you ever wonder about infant Christ? Or, or better yet, Jesus and his terrible twos. Did he ever get pouty and need a quick spank from Mary? Did he ever go to bed without his fish and bread? How did adolescent Jesus, by the way, this, this is the one that perplexes me the most. How did adolescent Jesus handle puberty? That is a fascinating question to me. And what were his early carpentry years like? Did he ever hammer his thumb? Did he ever make a mistake with his measurements? Probably. He was human. He was also divine. So, <laughs> I don't, I doubt he swore when he hammered his thumb. Uh, what does he just say? Me? Like, oh my me? I, I don't know. But I think the Bible gives us everything we need, but not everything we want. There are gaps in our knowledge, gaps that don't make us feel so much unsatisfied as just curious. The lost years of Jesus are one such gap, but this morning we're going to examine another set of lost years, the lost years of Paul the Apostle. We know a lot about Paul, thankfully, uh, thanks to Luke and Paul's own autobiographical accounts in his letters. But a month ago, We wrapped up our study in the book of Acts, and in the final sermon, we looked at how Luke ended his masterpiece abruptly. Why? Why does he spend a whole chapter, uh, chapter 27 is all about this one boat ride. It's a long, drawn-out story. It's a great story. But then fully a third of the book is Paul waiting to get to Rome, the center of of the, the world at the time. Fully a third of the book is Paul getting to Rome. And then once he gets to Rome, basically all Luke says is, he got there, and it was great. The end. Um, it's weird. It, there's a bit of a hole there. There's not a lot of info. You'd think he would fill us in more about what happens once he gets to Rome. But we don't know anything. Of course, in that sermon, we talked about the significance of that abrupt ending for us. Us who continue to live in the story of the acts of the Holy Spirit. We read this fantastic quote from an author named Lloyd Ogilvie that said, The abrupt ending leaves us with the challenge and opportunity to allow the Spirit to write the next chapter in the book of Acts today in and through us. That Luke perhaps cut it off so quick to say, but the story is not done, obviously. You are the story. Sure, Lloyd, it's all well and good. We are the rest of the story, and that's very inspiring. But still, where's my cup of tea? I want more. I want more detail. I'm filled with curiosity about the time after Paul got to Rome. I want to know more. Um, Luke really drops the ball in that regard. I wish there was a Luke part three. Thankfully, however, there are some things we do know and can piece together about the final years of Paul's life. Some of this can be pieced together with tidbits from the letters he wrote in that time. So um, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon were all written when he was under house arrest in Rome. Um, After he was freed, and we'll look at that, he wrote three more books, first and second Timothy and Titus. In those books, we get some glimpses of what life was like for Paul. And they're really interesting, I think. I hope they're interesting because we're going to talk about them. Some of the story is dependent on Paul's autobiographical writing, but some of it's just based on church tradition, which is reliable. It's early, early, early tradition, but it's just tradition. We don't, we don't know for sure if it's real or not. It's reliable, but it's fallible. 
But as promised, today we will look at what we know or think we know about Paul following the conclusion of Acts. The result, I hope, isn't just a satisfaction of curiosity or the gleaning of some useless trivia about a really important dude. In, in the end, I hope we'll all be encouraged by the faithfulness, as it says here, the steadfastness of this great apostle during the ups and downs of his final few years. Paul was steadfast to the end, beautifully so. But let's begin with the end of the book of Acts, specifically the last two verses, as a reminder of what Paul was up to as Acts wound down. So this is Acts 28, 30 to 31. It says, For two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. That's how the book ends, kind of with this open-ended note. As a Roman citizen who has appealed to Caesar to have his case heard, Paul was no common prisoner, especially because no one had actually arrived. None of his accusers were there to actually level any accusations against him. He was just under house arrest until he could. He appealed to Caesar, so that's what he was waiting for. So he had a degree of relative freedom in the house that he had rented for himself. Guests could come to go, and Paul was free to, to evangelize and probably even do some manual labor in, in order to, to earn some living wages. But the freedom had its limits. Paul was chained at all times to a Roman soldier, a praetorian, um, which is the praetorians were like the Roman secret service. They were the elite guards in charge of protecting the emperor. And Paul's house was right outside the Praetorian barracks. He had somebody chained to him in four-hour shifts at all times. No privacy whatsoever. Um, we talked in the other sermon about how uncomfortable that would be. However, God used that uncomfortable situation for good. As Philippians 1, 12-14 says, What has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul wrote these words, or dictated them, probably most likely, probably to Luke. He he wrote these words with a member of the palace guard chained to him. So this palace guard sitting here must be a little awkward. Paul is saying, all the palace guards know all about me. They know why I'm in chains. And that guy's probably like, yeah, we, we know, everybody knows. You're here because of this Jesus guy who you love so much and you're kind of fanatical about. He's declaring that his chains and his sufferings have made an impact on his guards, as well as all those visitors who are encouraged by Paul's boldness, despite the uncomfortable situation. And so the gospel is spread without fear because of Paul's steadfast enthusiasm for his faith, even with a Roman persecutor attached to him at all times. He cannot escape this symbol of Roman persecution. It's literally chained to his wrist. But he sees that as a good thing, as a blessing, that all who come see how fearless, how bold he is, how steadfast he is, and they leave encouraged. And even those Praetorians are beginning to be changed by Paul. Paul's rented home was a place of thanksgiving and joy, despite the uncomfortable circumstances. It was a place of prayer and planning for many believers across the Roman Empire. Paul would have debates, but not like Facebook debates, which are ugly and stupid. He would have kind-hearted debates with the goal of encouraging other people. And he would never debate about foolish secondary um, secondary things. In his letters to Titus and Timothy, which were, he writes to these young pastors he's encouraging, in both those letters he is adamant, do not engage in foolish, quarrelsome debates about things that don't matter. Just stay away from that. It's not important and it only leads to disunity. So I imagine this house being a place of 
debate about the important stuff. But if somebody would bring up unimportant things, Paul would just laugh about it and say, I don't know, it's not important. Guests in his home were offered encouragement and teaching as well as prayers and songs of praise. He would discipline severely. Paul had had no room for heresy, but he would always discipline with an eye towards forgiveness and restoration. So if somebody showed up and said, uh, I really wonder, is Jesus really to be equated with God? Paul would fight that. Or if somebody came in and said, you know, I think these Gentiles that are showing up in your house all the time, I think they better start getting circumcised. Paul would fight that adamantly, but always with an eye towards restoration. Despite his inconvenient situation, Paul avoided bitterness and hostility. It wasn't, it wasn't just his eagerness and fearlessness despite his change that, chains that impressed the Praetorians. It was his deep well of love, which radiated out of him. Every guest who came to that home knew that love, the love of Christ. Um, whether, whether Paul was with guests or whether he was in relative solitude, as much solitude as you can have when you're chained to somebody at all times, whether there was people there or not, these Praetorians, they felt that love of Christ. This was a place where Christ was known. And I love that idea of, of being under house arrest, being restricted in one sense, but totally unrestricted in another. Guards, visitors, and friends alike walked into that little room and felt the loving presence of Christ and were impacted by it. Paul wrote Ephesians in that little house. And he wrote it looking out over the training, guard, uh, training grounds of the Praetorians. And one of them was wearing the full Praetorian outfit. And Paul looked at this outfit and, and got an idea. And one commentary commentator I read said, the Praetorian actually probably helped him write this, which is super cool. But And it's one of the most famous passages of Paul, the armor of God. And Paul looks out over the window and he sees all the things they're wearing. And he starts to create this, this spiritual suit of armor. So there's the, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the belt of truth, the shoes of peace, breastplate of righteousness. He looks at, at, at all that these Praetorians are, are wearing. And then he ends the passage by asking the churches in and around Ephesus to pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me, that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So Paul, even despite his chains, knows about the strength and power of the Spirit's presence. Even in house arrest, even in chains, and he's praying, he's asking his friends in and around Ephesus to pray for him that he would have more strength and more fearlessness. Why? Well, a time was coming when Paul would need every piece of that armor and every prayer for strength. It was a, around AD 60 or 61 that Paul arrived in Rome, finally, and was under house arrest. And two years later, he went to trial. It was this coming trial that led Paul to ask the churches to pray for him, for boldness and for fearlessness. As he planned to turn the trial into an opportunity to witness to the most powerful people in the world, including the emperor himself, Nero. That's why Paul asks for, for strength, not to endure whatever death he faced, but to have fearlessness and courage and boldness to proclaim the goodness of Jesus to, of all people, Nero himself. Nero had only recently begun sitting in on these trials again after he had, he had kind of delegated that to someone else, and now he's back sitting it. It amused him, is the words of his historian. It amused him to sit in, in the court of justice and hear these cases. Nero was judge and executioner. So, Paul was facing no less than the man worshipped as a son of the gods, a man known as Lord of Lords. And do those terms sound familiar? 
Paul planned to inform them all, every person in Rome, to hear about the real Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Son of the God, Son of God. And the prayers worked. Despite the fact that Nero's mind was becoming more unjust and degenerate by the minute, he acquitted Paul, and in doing so, basically put, gave a stamp of approval to Christianity as a whole as a legitimate religious sect. He's basically saying, we're not going to persecute the Christians. This is legit. Gives a stamp of approval. As we'll see, Nero himself would prove that declaration tragically hollow and short-lived. But for now, Paul had his chains removed and he was free to go. After nearly five long, unjust years of, of being in custody, Paul was able to get out and evangelize again. At this point, not much is known other than a few local traditions. In Romans 15, Paul talks about wanting to go to Spain really, really badly. So you can imagine that after he's released from house arrest that he went to Spain, that he finally had the salty Atlantic breeze on his face and that that brought him a lot of joy. I like that image of, of in his last gasp of evangelism that Paul got to the place he was always hoping to get to. I hope so. That would make me happy for Paul. In other letters, Paul writes of his desire to visit Colossae. He had written a letter to Colossae, the letter to the Colossians, but he'd never been there. But he kept getting reports that the Colossians were doing really well. So maybe once he was freed, he finally got to go to Colossae, as he had hoped. Maybe he got to Crete to visit Titus. He, He writes to Titus that he longs to visit him in Crete. Maybe he got there. He longed to be reunited with the church in Ephesus, as Lisa mentioned. They were heartbroken to say goodbye to Paul. So maybe he got back there to see them. Maybe these places were blessed with the presence of the aging but no less urgent apostle once again. We're not sure. I like that idea of uh, not retired by any means, but a free-to-roam Paul getting to checking off these places he wanted to get to. But what we do know is this. Paul had good reason to express such urgency. He was facing attacks against both A, the truth that he loved, and B, the believers that he loved. In the four years or so of freedom after his release from house arrest, Paul wrote two books to two different pastors. As I mentioned, Titus and Timothy. Um, First Timothy was written in this time of roaming around of, of freedom. Both those books, First Timothy and Titus, speak of resisting foolish arguments against the truth. So old blasphemies were beginning to crop up about who Jesus is and how much legalism he requires. They were cropping up like fires. And so Paul and his trips, they weren't just visits. He was stamping out these fires of heresy actively as he, as he went around. Um, the truth that he had given his life for was under fire. So he goes to put them out. But there's another greater threat facing Paul and the Christians. Not a threat against their spiritual life, but a threat against their physical life. Two years after Paul was released from house arrest, it was the year 64 AD, there was an enormous fire in Rome. Um, Many thousands of people lost their lives, and many other thousands of people lost their livelihoods. Historians think that Nero actually started the fire himself because he was a psychopath and to, to sort of cement his own power. But with the populace, with all of Rome now seething at the fire, Nero needed to deflect blame. And who did he deflect blame towards? Christians. He blamed them for the fire. Christians in Rome were blamed for the arson and destruction. And from then on, Nero's earlier favorable uh, legal decision was turned into a tragic mockery. There's a historian named Tacitus, and his account of the persecution faced by the Christians is heartbreaking. I'll summarize it just by saying Christians were being crucified, 
but not just crucified, dipped in hot wax, then crucified, and then lit on fire. Um, that Nero lit his gardens with the flaming bodies of Christian martyrs. Many were sewn into animal skins and thrown in the arena where dogs would tear them apart. Some were fed to lions, leopards, bears, boars. They, they made sport of the Christians. Uh, it's, it's hard to read that part of, of our shared church history. And while many joined in the blame against the Jesus people, others saw the cruelty for what it was, not justice for the good of Rome, but a means to satisfy a powerful man's cruel bloodlust. Many people began to sympathize with the Christians during this persecution. And many, when they saw what the, how the Christians endured and what they endured, became Christians themselves. Um, this is Seneca, a Roman historian. He wrote, in the midst of the flame and of the rack, so the rack, you're tied to this wooden thing and then slowly stretched until you're torn apart, and then often lit on fire. In the midst of the flame and the rack, I have seen men not only not groan, that is little, not only not complain, that is little, not only not answer back, that too is little, but I have seen them smile, smile with a good heart. In other words, their steadfastness in the face of torture and death was making an impact. People saw that they faced these things with thanksgiving, with joy, that they went to their death smiling and singing and praising their God. And that has an impact on people. But it was not ultimately Nero who arrested and punished the Christians. It was his Roman guards who did that, including many of the soldiers who had been in contact with the light of Christ's love through Paul. They were now forced to torture their new Christian friends, or at least arrest them. We know that a number of Roman soldiers refused to participate in the persecution and that some actually died as Christians themselves, that they gave up their their Roman Praetorian eliteness and became like their brothers and sisters even unto death, which is beautiful. Survivors had to flee to secret places, to catacombs and tombs and the sewers, heading underground to wait out the storm. There, even today, if you go to the catacombs around Rome, there are tile mosaics of Paul's likeness. So that's how we know what Paul looked like. By the way, short, bald, long, slopey nose. That's, that's our man Paul. Man after my own heart. Meanwhile, Paul continued during this time. So the, in 64 AD, just persecution is, is going full tilt against Christians in Rome. But meanwhile, Paul, He's still traveling and teaching. He's fueled by the urgency of combating both the heretics and strengthening the believers in the face of this new institutional persecution. But around the year 66 AD, so two years after the fire, that institutional persecution would catch up with our faithful apostle. Paul had one more epistle in him. Epistle is a fancy word for letter. He had one more letter in him during his his, his final imprisonment. And that's the second letter to Timothy. The last that he would dictate before his martyrdom. Second Timothy paints a, a really beautiful portrait of an apostle who is both sad and strong, both dignified and downcast. Paul was near Troas. Here's Troas right here when he was caught and arrested. We know that because in Second Timothy he says, I left all my stuff in Troas. Could, could you please bring it to me? It's just like this heartbreaking little detail. His, his scrolls and his cloak. He left his coat there. He was arrested for treason against Rome and for his role in starting the Great Fire, which obviously he had no role whatsoever. 
So he once again found himself in chains. And he once again saw the goodness and glory of God amidst those chains. This is 2 Timothy 2. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But, and I kind of touched on this earlier, God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. God's word is not chained. Paul is, but not the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul was crammed into a cell, reached only by a rope or a ladder cut into the floor above. That's where the stinky, disgusting, unsanitary cell he found himself in. Paul is crammed into a cell, but the gospel that he that he gave his life for was reaching new people every day, spreading to every corner of the empire. If, if there was a fire in Rome, the new fire in Rome is this Christianity thing, and it's catching like, like crazy. So even though Paul's contained, the gospel is not contained. Paul was always in contact with the Holy Spirit, and it must have been a great encouragement to him to be in the presence of the Spirit in that dark, filthy cell. But he knew his time was coming. In his last written words, likely dictated to Luke, possibly through that hole in the floor, Paul speaks of loneliness and resignation, but also thankfulness and strength. This is 2 Timothy Timothy 4, 6-18. Paul writes, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Now he's writing a personal message to Timothy himself. Do your best to come to me quickly. And it needs to be quick, because Paul's going to be put to the sword any day now. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. And remember, this is the same John Mark who Paul had kicked off the ministry trip. He saw him as a failure. Now, in his last days, he's begging for Mark to come be with him, which I think is this beautiful portrait of reconciliation. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the tar- parchments. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, so this is before Nero, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might, might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. In other words, he could have faced being fed to the lions. He didn't on that day. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Those are among the last written words we have from Paul. And aren't they sad? He he sounds like a really beaten man. But despite feeling beaten and alone, still triumphant. Still strong. Here's a quick aside. I, I read a story last night of two men in England who went to a seafood festival and saw this huge old lobster uh, waiting on ice to be eaten, to be purchased and eaten. So they paid the equivalent of $50 Canadian to buy this lobster. They, don't, they donated this lobster to an aquarium, and they got free passes for life to this aquarium. But why did they do this for this old lobster? Well, I'm quoting one of the burly lobster saviors when I read, Because he's an old boy and he deserves better than ending up in the pot. 
So they paid money and gave him to an, He's an old boy. He deserves better than ending up in the pot. Well, Paul is an old boy too, and he deserves better than feeling deserted. His beloved scrolls three countries away, his friends abandoning him, or worse, abandoning their faith. He is unaccompanied at his trial, and he's facing certain death. He is an old boy in a pot waiting to be boiled. But even in his desolation, Paul sees grace. He was able to proclaim God's grace to the Gentiles one last time before Nero himself. He was spared from a cruel, brutal death at the jaws of the lions. He was able to compose one last final letter to his beloved little brother in the faith, Timothy. Plus, Luke remains at his side. So despite all this mess around him, and as terrible as his circumstances are, Paul sees good, even in that that awfulness. But the biggest glimpses of grace are found in the bookends of the passage I just read. And that's the point of us examining the lost years of Paul. That's the point of this sermon. It's found in 2 Timothy 4, 6-8 and 18. And I'll read them one more time. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul was ready for what was coming to him. He was ready for that. In fact, he'd been ready under anticipation of death for three decades now. And he had been close several times. So he was ready. He didn't think it was unfair for an accomplished servant like himself, this dignified old lobster, to be tossed into the boiling pot of martyrdom. He didn't think that was an injustice. He knows what a great fight he has fought in the name of Jesus. He knows how well he's run the race and how many people he's brought to join the race with him. He knows the crown that he will receive for his dedication to the king. And he's thrilled to share that crown with his friends, Luke and Timothy and Shane and Scott and Dennis and Trish and Mary. He knows what he's done. And he's thrilled that he's accomplished so much. He doesn't anticipate his death with depression. He anticipates his death with um, readiness. Just this resignation, I guess, is the best word. He knows it's coming. He's ready for it. Among the last words he would ever speak or write were words of clinging to the promise of rescue, but not rescue from the prison cell. He knows there's no hope for that. Rather, rescue from this ugly, brutal world of selfishness, suffering, and sin. He will be rescued from that in no time. He would be brought safely to the heavenly kingdom, which, with head held high, the victor's crown gleaming, as he finally gets to lay eyes on the king, whose beautiful voice had changed his whole life some 35 years earlier. He finally gets to be with Jesus. I love what the author John Pollock wrote about Paul, and by the way, I relied heavily on this his book for all my sermons about Paul. But he wrote, Paul didn't resent the fact that far from enjoying a tranquil old age, venerated, uncontradicted, honored, he must battle to the last, for he had expected this trouble. I love that quote. I love the idea that he knows it's coming and he just keeps fighting. He won't give up. Paul deserved to meet his end with dignity. At a more advanced age, having enjoyed a retirement ceremony attended by members of every church from the Atlantic to the Sea of Galilee, he deserved to know that when Christianity was finally legalized in 313 AD, not one, not one of his churches he started had faltered. They were all still going strong. He deserved to know that. He deserved to die a victorious death. But he knew he would never receive that. He knew what he faced for his faith. What he faced was the same fate as his master, a criminal's death. 
as his life was being poured out like a drink offering, he was reunited with the only other man who could claim the level and power of apostleship as Paul. He was reunited with Peter, actually. The tradition holds that him and Peter were together and actually died on the same day, June 29th, 66 AD, um, according to tradition. Peter was crucified upside down at his own request as he felt he was unworthy to die in the same manner as Jesus. But that's not what Paul faced. Since Paul was a Roman citizen, he didn't meet his end that way. In the evening, he would have been marched through Rome on his way to his execution, a more clean and humane death by the sword, a beheading. In his chains, accompanied by the soldiers and sword-wielding executioners, onlookers would have shown either sympathy or scorn. But Paul was not ashamed or afraid to be slaughtered like Jesus. He was not marching to his doom so much as he was heading to a feast with an old friend. They stopped at a place of tombs among the pines called Aqua Silva, which means healing waters, ironically enough. There's a little cell there. Paul would have spent the night in that cell, perhaps joined in time by Timothy or John Mark um, and Luke. If they did make it there to be with Paul, there was not weeping. Rather, they rejoiced and sang songs of thanksgiving together. At first light, Paul was taken from his cell, met by the executioner, who stood stark naked as per tradition, holding a sword. Paul was stripped to the waist and bound, kneeling to a short pole, which left his neck free for the fateful final stroke. And as the sword was raised in the air, and I totally ripped this off from that author I mentioned earlier, as the sword was raised in the air, Paul's last words to Timothy rushed through his mind, that the Lord will rescue me and will bring me safely, the flash of a sword, into his heavenly kingdom. And that was the end. Just like that, the life of a great and godly man was snuffed out with ugly Roman efficiency. Just another enemy of Rome disposed of in the background, in the quiet, unseen and unheard. It seems like a cruel fate for a servant as great as Paul. But the lost years of Paul still contain a wealth of valuable lessons, and not just the words in his letters. Paul continued to ride the waves of freedom and persecution he had always known since his mission work across Asia Minor. This wasn't new to him. He knew he would taste suffering for his faith, and when it came, he faced it with steadfastness and thanksgiving. He deserved better, but so did his master Jesus. It's tempting to say from our position of comfort and privilege that it was a tragic waste, but Paul lived a life and died a death that brought glory to Jesus. There is no greater purpose for any human in existence than to bring glory to Jesus. In chains, he transformed the lives of friends and enemies alike. In freedom, he served the Lord relentlessly. In prison, he demonstrated faithfulness and encouragement. In death, he was reunited with his king. In other words, in all things and in all ways, at all times, Paul was a steadfast servant who was overtaken by love. The teacher of Ecclesiastes might look at this and say, meaningless, meaningless, even Paul had his head chopped off. Meaningless, it's all purposeless. But I don't think that's true. I don't think there's meaninglessness here. I think there's power and purpose. It's a miracle that we have his story in the book of Acts and the letters he wrote, but even in the missing parts of his story, we see a brother who knew what awaited him and raced towards it with his head held high. In a life that offered so many words of inspiration, that steadfast faith in the face of undeserved death will never cease to be so beautifully inspirational to me. To me, the death that he faced is just as inspirational as the life that he lived and the way that he faced it. May we be as faithful as Paul was, and may we honor his words in 2 Timothy 2.3, among the last he ever wrote, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Join with me in suffering. That's his invitation to you, not just the people 
not just to Timothy and the people Timothy was serving. That's his invitation to us. Join with me in suffering. May we run the race with as much determination as Paul until we get to meet our king as well. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the steadfast determination of Paul. And we are his children in that regards. We are the fruit of his labors. And we thank you for his hard work and the hard work of many other saints in our, in our church history. Jesus, I pray that it would inspire us to, to run the same race, to be as fearless and as bold and courageous as Paul was, to look death in the face with head held high, um, knowing that we are going to, to the feast, to your presence, to, be, um, to meet Paul and to meet you and the hope of being finally made complete and finally being at rest. We thank you for his steadfastness, and we pray the same steadfastness for us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So that is the official conclusion to the story of Acts. We are going to be uh, doing Philippians for as long as that takes, and it won't be two years. Philippians is a four-chapter book, so if it takes me two years, you know that I'm doing it on purpose, just to be difficult. But I'm looking forward to getting into Philippians. It's one of my favorite books. Have a great new year. We'll see you again in, in 2019. me, the death that he faced is just as inspirational as the life that he lived. Short, bald, long, slopey nose. That's, that's our man, Paul.